All right. Good morning, everybody. Hey, do me a favor uh, really quick. I want you to turn to the person next to you, tell them good morning, and then I want you to share with them really quick an uncomfortable experience that you had this week. So tell them good morning, uncomfortable experience you had this week. All right, guys, thank you for humoring me with that, and I'm going to top your experience uh, really quick. So... Um, so a couple weeks ago, uh, Chan uh, asked me if I would be interested um, in speaking this Sunday because he was going to be out of town, and I said, uh, sure, um, what is the topic that you have queued up uh, to talk about? And he was like, I, I, don't know, I don't know, let me look at the calendar, and then he pulls it up on his phone, and he goes, oh, you got this, I just need you to go in and talk about money that day. And I was like, great, every pastor's favorite topic uh, to talk about uh, is money. So um, just right up front, I just want to put everybody at ease really quick, because if you're like me, um, maybe you're you're like a little bit cynical or whatever, and you're like, what's coming at the end of this? Is he going to announce some kind of surprise building campaign, and they're going to pass out special envelopes, and then, you know... You know, something like that's going to happen. We're not going to be doing any of that uh, today or anything like that. In fact, um, right now, can we just put our hands together and just thank God for how generous our church is? Um, I just want to say, this is one of the most generous places that I've ever had the privilege of being a part of. I mean, even uh, last week, just raising, you know, over $30,000 in a 24-hour window for um, refugees in Ukraine. I mean, I... I'm so blessed and so thankful uh, as a pastor and a minister to be able to be a part of this and to be able to join and partner with you guys and being generous and truly making a difference here in our community and and around the world. So um, we've been in this series uh, and we've been talking about the pursuit of happiness and we've been talking about this thing uh, that I think we're all on the hunt for, this ever elusive, um, always quickly fading happiness and how can we finally find Uh, that joy that we so desire and we so long for and we so search for. So uh, to get started this morning, I want to give us a little story, an example, maybe to give some traction for where we're going this morning. So uh, anybody remember as a kid having like some irrational fears uh, over something like as little kids, uh, maybe you were afraid of something random like clowns uh, or maybe you were afraid of like weird dolls. I mean, I think some dolls are super creepy. Uh, Maybe you were like afraid of the dark or you were afraid of strangers or people, you know, that you just don't know, you had this irrational fear. So what did your parents do? Uh, They tried to develop a tool uh, or a tactic to help you feel secure whenever this irrational fear uh, came over you. And they gave you, I don't know, a stuffed lamb, uh, and they named it Lamb Lamb, and they told you, hey, as long as you have Lamb Lamb, you'll be safe and secure, right? And you felt so secure as long as you held Lamb Lamb nice and tight. Anybody do this with their kids? Anybody? Nope, just my parents? Okay. Um, But yeah, so think about it. Like, Lamb Lamb was ultimately powerless to bring you any security in any moment uh, when you really needed him to, right? Like, he is just a stuffed lamb. That's all he can do is, is be cuddled. But it sure felt like he made you safe, didn't it? Now, I want you to imagine, as an adult, that someone was breaking into your house, and instead of reaching for something to defend yourself with, you reached for Lamb Lamb. <laughs> Like, that's really silly to think about, right? Now, also think about whenever you were a kid, things that made you feel successful or something that made you feel important. Maybe you won, I don't know, the spelling bee in the second grade, um, just to pull something completely random out. Uh, And now today, when you go in for a job interview, do you put second grade spelling bee winner on your resume? 
whenever you are uh, maybe having a conversation with close friends about you know, business or whatever, and they're like, man, I just had a great year this year uh, in business, and you're like, yeah, but I won the spelling bee in second grade, and that's forever, man. Like, <laughs> you can't take that away, you know? Guys, I'm afraid as adults that we have traded in lamb lamb, and we have traded being the spelling bee champion for something else that makes us feel safe, that makes us feel important, and that makes us feel valuable, but ultimately can't do that. And that's our paychecks. It's money. And it's interesting that as you open the pages of the New Testament and you look at the content of the words of Jesus and you look at his teachings, Jesus talked about money a lot more than he talked about any other subject. In fact, if you were to go in and count it all up, more than heaven or hell, Jesus talked about money. And why is that? Why do you think Jesus did that? I think it's because Jesus knew how easily our whole lives can become wrapped up And it can become more about what we make and what we have rather than who we are, rather than who we are becoming, and rather than what we do with the resources that God entrusts with us. What if the God of the Bible, what if our creator who loves us and desires for us to live a life of joy, Jesus said that I came so that you might have life and you might have it in full, that you might have joy and that you might have joy in abundance. What if that savior has a better dream for you than what the American dream can offer you? What if rather than living in this slavery of selfishness, because that's what selfishness does, it makes us slaves to that desire. What if God wants to bring you into a new kind of life, to experience life in a new way, a life that's grounded in generosity? Because listen, selfishness, is based on a scarcity mindset. It's based on a lack of faith. But generosity is based on an abundance mindset. And it is based on security and trusting in God's faithfulness. Can I ask you, which one do you think would be better? Let's find out. And then maybe by the end of the day, you can decide for yourself. Would you guys join me in prayer? God, we are thankful that we have the privilege to be a part of a church like this. God, a church that's so generous, a church that's so hungry to see lives changed, a church that's hungry to love you, to love people, to make a difference here in our community and to make a difference abroad. Lord, we do this because you are the God of generosity. God, you're the God who gives and gives and gives and ultimately you gave your only son so that he might die in our place to pay a price that we could never pay. God, the ultimate sign of generosity. So Lord, as we commit our lives to following you, God, as we commit our life to your way, Lord, help us be a people who are generous. God, help us not be people who are consumed by selfishness, who are consumed about our own life. God, help us not be a people who lack faith, who lack trust. God, help us believe that you're the God of provision. But God, when you trust us with something, God, you have great expectations for what we would do with that. Lord, I pray as we open this word today that you would speak through me, that I would step out of the way and that you would step in. Lord, I can't move anybody's heart in this room, but you can. I can't change anybody's life. I can't change anyone's mind. I can't change anyone's heart, but Holy Spirit, you can. So we invite you into this place. We invite you, God, into our hearts, God, not just to hear these words and to be entertained and just to be another Sunday that we check off, but that we might leave this place maybe one degree different 
maybe one step closer to you. Let me ask this in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want you guys to flip or tap your way over to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 8. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, or maybe you just haven't read it in a while, Ecclesiastes was written by a guy named King Solomon. In the Old Testament, it says that King Solomon was the wisest man uh, that ever lived. And with his wisdom came great, great success. He was the most successful king uh, in Israel's um, history. Um, he was successful at every single thing that he ever did. So today, um, we're going to take some advice from actually the guy who is the richest man who ever lived. And if there's someone who's going to know a thing or two about wealth, it's going to be Solomon. It's going to be the guy who's had more wealth than anybody. Solomon, he was the richest man on the planet uh, when he was alive. And just his income alone, if you were to go back and you know read some things that scholars have done and you try to adjust for inflation and stuff like that, um, we would go back and realize and read that Solomon received over 25 tons of gold every single year. That was his income. That was just his income, not his like net assets, not all of his other stuff. He had just income, all right? He would have had over a billion dollars a year coming into his account. Um, We're talking liquid cash, my dudes, you know what I'm saying? Not like everything else that he had. That's about 0.1% of the coveted six-figure salary that everybody wants. In today's dollar, Solomon, he would be at the top of Forbes top 10 every single year, and it wouldn't even be close. Like, let me just try to put this in perspective with you. Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk go back and forth right now in culture for who is the richest man on earth, depending on the values of their companies uh, and their stock prices. So somewhere between $170 billion and $200 billion is what Jeff and Elon kind of go back and forth being worth. If you put both of them together, they're still not even close to how much Solomon was worth. Apple is the most valuable company on earth. Apple's market cap is $3 trillion. All right, Solomon, if you put all three of them together is still richer. In fact, scholars estimate if you go through and you adjust for inflation and you look at every single thing he had, Solomon by himself would have been worth over nine trillion dollars. One person, guys. Solomon was way more successful, way richer, and way more married than any of you will ever be (laughs) in your life. Yet towards the end of his life, Solomon writes this long poetic book called Ecclesiastes, where he reflects on all of the many things that we all try to go after and that we all try to pursue and where we all try to find happiness and how that ultimately all of those things do not stack up to what it is to have a relationship with God. So uh, he gives a long poetic answer on the purpose of life, what's the purpose of work, what's the purpose of money, what's the purpose of possessions and everything. So um, we're going to look at what Solomon writes right here. Let's start in verse 8. Solomon writes this, if you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from all the fields. What's he saying in verse 8 and 9? He says, as you continue to accure wealth, more and more people are going to see that, and they're going to try to figure out how they can get in on that. And then that uh, little section right there in verse 9, the increase from the land is taken by all, and the king's profits from the field. As soon as you start making a lot of money, the first thing the government's going to do is try to figure out how they can get some of that through taxes. Let's keep going in verse 10. Solomon writes, whoever loves money never has enough. 
Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. This too is meaningless. That's a phrase that Solomon repeats over and over and over uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, He repeats it 38 times. He's talking about when something's meaningless. It's like whenever you go outside on a cold day and you breathe out, you know, that fog that comes out of your mouth. He says it's like trying to grab onto that, grasp it in front of it. It looks like it's real. It looks like it's solid, but it's not. As soon as you grab it, it slides through your fingers and it disappears. He's saying pursuing wealth is like you trying to grab onto that fog. Let's keep going. In verse 11, it says, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to their owners except to feast their eyes on them? You guys know those people that seems like the more money they get, the more stuff that they collect and they don't really do anything with it. They just, they just collect it and they get more and more and more just for them to look at. That's what he's talking about. Verse 12, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich... Their abundance permits them no sleep. Verse 13, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners. Not the benefit, the harm of its owners. Or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb. And as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil, that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? They work, they try to grab on to that wind that slides through their fingers. Verse 17, all their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Anybody a little depressed and anxious yet (laughs) about going to work tomorrow morning? Hold on, there's good news coming. Look right here in verse 18. This is what I have observed to be good. That it is appropriate for a person to eat, eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days that God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and to be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. So that's a lot to digest right there, isn't it? Maybe that sent you on a little bit of emotional roller coaster, and that's okay, because that's what it's supposed to do. That's the way that it was written. But let's try to summarize this down for a second. And maybe as we work through this, you should just think, who would you rather be? The person that Solomon is talking about in the beginning that can't sleep at night, that's anxious, that hoards wealth, but it doesn't come to their benefit? Or would you rather be the person at the very end of verse 18 that says, God keeps them occupied with gladness of their heart? Try to think of which person you want to be. But let's talk about this, uh, I think, would be helpful in three uh, points. You know, Steph Curry made a career off three-pointers, and I intend to do the same. So uh, some of you will get that in the car later. (laughs) First thing, let's talk about money, what money will not do what money will not do. One, money will not make you happy. It will not make you happy. So much of our culture tells us that the key to happiness, or maybe at least the key to contentment, is by making money and then making even more money after you make that money. But for what end? For what end? So that you can buy more things? So that you go more places? Maybe drink more Starbucks? Think about it. Every single company that is successful has a great marketing department. 
And a marketing department's job is to convince you that your life will be better if you buy their product. In fact, if you don't buy their product, your life will be incomplete. If you don't buy their product, you are going to be left behind if you don't do that. That's why every single commercial features people smiling, features people happy, dancing to an upbeat song. I mean, even stuff like Pepto-Bismol. Like, I have never seen someone be happy having to buy Pepto-Bismol. Like, if you need to buy that, you're not in a happy mood, except on the commercial. For some reason, on the commercial, everyone is ecstatic to be purchasing Pepto-Bismol. But this is the promise that the marketplace makes you that it cannot keep. Think about Coke's slogan for a second. Open happiness. If you drink a Coke you might get a slight sugar rush, and you might experience a slight increase in risk of heart disease. But ultimately, you're going to feel the same after you drink that Coke. So you might drink another and another and another, but it still fall flats. That's because you're getting dopamine hits, which leads to pleasure. Pleasure cannot be conflated with happiness. They're not the same thing, especially in the eyes of the scripture that God has entrusted us with. Pleasure comes and goes as quick as it came. Happiness is sustainable. Happiness is linked to serotonin, which is a different chemical in the amazing, amazing brain that God has designed and placed inside each of us. I bet when you guys first got your first job, you were making minimum wage. Maybe you were like me. And you were like, whoa, this is a lot of money. How am I going to spend all this? What am I going to do with this? And then not long after that, you started thinking, man, this is not enough. I could really use a raise. I could really be making a little more money. And then you got your first full-time job. And it probably didn't take long for you to think, man, be nice if I had some extra cash. I could go do this or I could go do that. I bet when you had your best year in business ever that you went out to eat that night to celebrate how great a year it was and you started talking about how you were going to make next year even better. Solomon is saying that the pursuit of more and more wealth is endless. The human spirit always desires more. It is never enough. It's like climbing a never-ending ladder that you always think you're getting to the top of only to look up and see 10 more rungs to go. It cannot bring you happiness and you can't bring you fulfillment through succeeding in your career. You know, Gallup World Research did a study. Uh, You can Google it and look it up um, after this. Uh, It's in the Journal of Natural Human Behavior, and they surveyed 1.7 million people across 164 countries. So if you're kind of into reading data and you're a little bit of a nerd like me, that's a really, really good uh, sample size. Um, And they discovered that people who made between $60,000 and $75,000 a year were just as happy, if not happier, than people who earned $200,000 or more per year. Can I tell you that money cannot buy you happiness? can't bring it to you. Money also can't make your problems go away. As the famous 20th century philosopher and poet Notorious B.I.G. once said, more money, more problems. <laughs> Solomon agrees. In the text, we read he remarks that the more wealth you procure, it seems it becomes more and more difficult for you to keep it, more and more difficult for you to hold on to it. You guys know this is true. Like as soon as you land a new job, As soon as you close a new deal, what's the first message that slides through your phone? Hey man, can I borrow $100? I'm sure I'll Venmo you back. Famous last words, 
All right, you're never going to get that $100 back. In fact, Solomon says the more wealth you gain, the more problems you gain, the more sleepless nights you become. Worrying about all the facets of things that you can't control that directly influence your life. For us, it would be things like payment plans, insurance, tax credits, loans, and leverage. Worrying about things that are out of your control. Regulations that affect your work that you have no say over. Does that sound like a less stressful, carefree, non-anxious, non-problematic life to you? Like sleepy and cranky, probably driving to work, hopped up like on you know, Starbucks or Bang Energy drinks, just anxiously, angrily vibrating down the road, thinking about all the people you have to yell at at work that day. Guys, money, it won't make you more secure. Look back at verses 13 and 15, what Solomon writes. There are so many things that affect the value of our possessions, that affect the value of our money, that are completely out of your control. Like, has the last two years not taught you anything? Not taught me anything? Not taught us anything? Like, I'm 27 years old, and I've lived through three once-in-a-lifetime financial crashes. We have 7.9% inflation right now, record high prices, and guess what? It's completely out of your control. I don't think anyone from the World Economic Forum called anybody in here this morning and was like, what do you think we should do? <laughs> it's completely out of your control. Like, why would we trust in something that's so unpredictable and so uncontrollable to bring us security? When we can have trust in the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Like, instead of trusting in money, Jesus remarks in the Sermon on the Mount that we should trust in him for provision, not in the things that we have. He even references Solomon. He says, look at the flowers. They are more beautifully clothed than the richest man ever. And how much more does God care about you than just a common flower? David says in the Psalms, I've been young and I've been old, but I've never seen his seed begging for bread. Never seen the righteous wanting. So now we know what money can't do. Maybe we can talk about what money can do, what it could do. Money is a tool. And in life, I've learned that whenever you have the right tool, that makes all the difference in the entire world. For example, a lawnmower is an excellent tool for cutting your grass. But a lawnmower is a terrible tool for cutting your hair. So start to think about money as another tool you have to build the kingdom of God. It is a tool to not only change circumstances around you, to change other people's circumstances, but it's also a tool to change yourself, to change who you are within. It's a tool to turn your selfishness into generosity. In fact, a major theme throughout the entire Bible is this idea that God wanted to bless Abraham and his family. Why did God want to bless Abraham? Think all the way back to the opening of the Bible, first few pages of Genesis. What does God say he's going to do? He says, God, I'm going to, or he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your family. I'm going to make a great name for you. Make your descendants many. Why? So that in turn, you might take that blessing and bless the whole world. The blessing was never meant just for Abraham to keep for himself and to keep for his family. It was so that they could take that blessing, take it and take that and bless it throughout the entire world to give that to others, to be generous. Jesus, in a few of his parables, talks about those who can be trusted. Who can be trusted? Who can be 
given more to steward. And the people who do well with what they're entrusted with are often given more. But listen, this is about more than just making a return on your investment. It's about taking the resources you have and using that to bless others. It's seeing your home, your apartment, your retirement, dream house, whatever it is, whatever is in your possession right now as an outpost for the kingdom of God, not a place that we go to retreat from the world in. It's seeing whatever money or assets that you have as an opportunity to share a meal with someone, to use food and time as a form of generosity with other people, and to see your table, no matter how big or how small it is, is a place where church can happen, where people's lives can be transformed, where they can come face-to-face with Jesus through having a relationship with you. That's what it's all about, where people can discover the goodness and the kindness of God through you. There is no better way to represent Jesus to someone than through being a generous and a hospitable person. Guys, money can be a tool to combat justice in big ways or small ways. It can be used to ease suffering throughout the world like we did last week. But it can also be used to change someone else's life that you know. It can be done in something as small as sending someone a gift that you know is going through a hard time, going through a difficult season. Or it can be as much as paying for someone to have life-saving surgery. The point is, is it's a tool. It's a tool. So finally, what should you do? What should you do walking away from this? First, we should all have a correct view of what money is. Jesus said that the root of all evil was the love of money, but not money itself. Jesus isn't pretending like you and I can make it through this world without having to interact with money, without having to use money, without having to be in the marketplace. But what he is warning, and I believe over and over and over, is the heart of our Savior in the New Testament is how easily you and I can be enslaved by the pursuit of wealth. Don't go into debt buying stuff you don't need with money that you do not have. Credit card companies get rich hoping that you pay the bare minimum every month and that you never make it out of debt. Proverbs 22 says the borrower is a slave to the lender. And I'm not saying that there's never a good time for a loan. All I'm saying is borrowing money for things that you don't need at minimum is unwise. Be content with what you have. Being content will lead you to more joy than going on a spending spree every single week ever can. Y'all know how it goes. You go out, you get a new watch for a few weeks, you feel like you're a better person, and then like after a week, you're like dinging that watch on door frames when you're walking through, the battery's dead, you like spill a soda on it or something like that, and then you realize you're like, I'm just still the same old dude, just with a new watch. You know? Don't buy stuff you really don't need because you think it's going to make you feel better. You think that's going to elevate who you are. You think that's going to make you an even bigger and better person that you are. Seek contentment over accumulation. Instead, view your money as a resource to serve other people, to provide meals, to provide hospitality, to lift other people up, to build others up, not build yourself up. You guys know sometimes I try really hard to be husband of the year. I really do. Um, and, uh, one time I tried to help, um, my wife, we were cooking dinner and, uh, we were making, um, this dish in an Instapot. Anybody Instapot fans out there? Anyone? Okay. If you don't have an Instapot, maybe you should, maybe your life actually would be better if you have one of those. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's a great millennial cooking tool. Um, so I was trying to help, uh, add, um, the ingredients in 
for what we were cooking for dinner. And the recipe called for one-fourth cup vinegar. And I read that as four one-cups of vinegar. I'm telling you that having the right measurement in life makes a big difference. Makes a big difference, especially when it comes to not ruining dinner. What if we've measured wealth with the wrong metric our whole life? Listen, I'm telling you, in Jesus' view of the economy, you can have eight figures, a black Amex, and five vacation rentals and still be broke. Measure it in lives impacted. Measure it in stories collected. Because there, true wealth finds. Let's get practical really quick, some takeaways. Maybe what this looks like for you is actually taking your budget seriously. Like I think some of us, you know, we go into the store, we buy something, we swipe, and we close our eyes, and we just hope that that thing dings green. Solomon remarks in this passage, you get a limited amount of time in life. Every single one of us, we have a finite amount of time, energy, and resources in our life. And we can use that to serve ourselves or to serve God. So I'm challenging you, steward it well. You get one life to make an impact. Get one chance. You get one time to be young. You get one time to be old. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. Practically, I'll give you a principle I used to hear a lot growing up. And again, it's a general principle. Like, I don't know everyone's financial situation, but I think in general, it's pretty good advice. Think about it like this way. It's called 10-10-80. For every $10 you earn, $1 goes to serving the church, $1 goes into savings or retirement or putting it away for a rainy day, and then you live off the remaining $8. Pretty easy principle to remember. But sometimes, let's be honest, we get a little antsy. We give zero, we save zero, and then we spend 12 off the credit card. And I remember like when I was a young adults pastor, I would be teaching this. I remember a guy coming up to me afterwards and he's like, man, that's great advice what you're saying up there. And I get it, it's just general principle, but you know, that's not really accurate for what real life is like. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, man, I'm a, I'm a young, single, full-time employee, not married. I got no dependents. I got no deductions. So my $10 when it comes to me is not $10. In fact, it's 22% is why I'm getting taxed. So it's more like $780 when it comes my way. And then I got to pay my student loan and then my rent gets auto-drafted after that. So really, I got $3. $3 is a lot less than eight. So what am I supposed to do if I only have $3? Look, the point I'm making is whether you have $3 or $3,000, God can use a generous spirit in his kingdom more than anything else. He can use that generous spirit in ways that we cannot imagine to influence and to impact people. The question is whether or not we're going to trust him. Jesus can feed 5,000 with a few fish and a little bit of bread. What do you think he could do with your $3? The question is whether or not we're going to trust him, whether or not we're going to be faithful with that, whether or not we're going to steward that well. So here's what we're going to do. In our remaining time, I'd like to invite everyone just to bow with me for a second. And in the stillness and the smallness of this moment, I would like us just to pray and just to ask God. Would you say, Lord, humbly I ask you, show me. Show me where selfishness is just woven into my life. It needs to be rooted out. Would you just pray that for a second?
you just pray, Lord, would you show me, God, how I can practice generosity? Would you show me just one person, one opportunity right now in my life where I can practice generosity to someone else? Lord, will you show me where I've had a lack of trust, a lack of faith in your provision and your goodness and kindness to provide for me and your family? Would you show me that? For anyone who's in here, who throughout today you've thought, man, that's me. My life has been consumed by selfishness and as I sit back and think about it, man, I am enslaved to this desire. I think about work, I think about money, I think about what's next. Every day, almost every hour of the day. If that's you, today I would just invite you to heed Jesus' words when he said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That Jesus' way and his life and his burden is light. And he desires for you a freedom that you can't get through accumulation. And I just invite you to repent, to turn from that, to turn around, to believe that he is who he said he was, that he died in your place. And it was only through that death that you can get out of that enslavement, that your willpower will only get you so far. And I invite you, commit your life to Jesus and step out of that and step into freedom. Would you pray for those right now who are, who are weighing that decision in their mind? Lord, we thank you for this time together. God, we thank you for this church. God, a, a place that you have already marked with such a generous spirit, Lord. And I pray today that we will take today's lesson, today's teaching from you. God, as a warning to stay on the straight and narrow, to stay on the path and for us not to depart from it, for us not to try to seek life anywhere else. God, I pray that we will go out of this place God, being a people who are marked by generosity and that our community would be changed by that. That as people experience our, our generous love, God, our hospitable spirit, Lord, that all of North Georgia will be impacted, God, that um, the partners that we partner with around the world will be impacted, uh, God, as they already have been. God, I pray they will continue to do so. I pray our community will be forever different by the work that you are doing right now in our hearts and our lives. Lord, we thank you for that, and we thank you for this time we've been able to gather together today. We ask this in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys so much. Hope you have a great week of worship, and I'll see you next Sunday.